ops, and a little bit of paranoia. Welcome to the Iron Sysadmin Podcast. I always feel like we should have shorter intro music. What do you think? Is it too long? No. I feel like we're just standing here staring at nothing. Well, no? I, I'm, I'm, I'm mastodoning, so I, I don't, you know. Oh, okay. Okay, you're busy with other things. Fine. All right. Uh, welcome, everybody, <laughs> to tonight's episode of the Iron Sysadmin Podcast, where we debate the lifelong issue, age-old issue, of whether our intro music is too long or not. So, you know, send us we, feedback. Is the intro music too long? I don't think it is. Really, I don't think it is. Why would you bring it up, then? I don't know. It just came to mind while it was playing. And, you know, this is a podcast okay. where we speak our mind. So that I don't think the intro music is long enough. I think we need to be able to bang our heads and stare into space longer. I could but then you cut it. I, just, I, I, oh, okay. I could get the I could get the full cut of that song. We could just play the whole thing at the beginning. It's like two and a half or three minutes long. That'd be fine, right? Yeah. 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 That'd be a good idea. Is, anyway. there, is there like a stairway to heaven version that's like twenty minutes long? Because that'd be even better. <laughs> that'd be perfect. That'd be perfect. <laughs> it's Iron System in Podcast. Now twenty minutes longer. Now twenty minutes long. That's what people want. A longer Iron System in Podcast. <laughs> My God, that episode with Paul was so long even split in half each ep- each half was over an hour they were like an hour and a half to two hours each <laughs> yeah but we enjoyed ourselves oh it was a lot of fun it was fun it was fun so uh, go back and listen to that but only if you have a lot of time to kill because <laughs> i guess when you combine us and paul who we're all known to go on um yeah it's uh it was it was it was never it was destined to be a long pod, long podcast. All right. Anyway, uh, we're already off topic and we haven't even introduced the topic yet. Um, but uh, I think I left off with um, welcome to the show. I'm your host, Nate. And joining me tonight is Jason. Hi, Jason. That's me. That's you. There's no Uncle Mark tonight, so you guys won't hear any Disney tunes. I'm sorry. Um, I'm not singing whether you like it or not. Although I do have... Discord! Nope, that isn't it. Nope. Nope. There it is. It's the pink button. Remember that, guys. It's the pink button. Uncle Mark is the pink button. All right, so tonight uh, we're going to... I'm kind of... I want to continue with our cloud arc, you know, that we started back... I guess it was October, November was the first time we started talking about cloud stuff. Um, I, I think security in the cloud is an interesting topic and probably a very important one, right? So we, we talked about like running apps in the cloud. We talked about lift and shift. Uh, we talked about some cloud terminologies. Um, there's probably lots more we can dig into here, but we can't really do a cloud topic justice without also covering security. So instead of just tacking it on at the end, like most people do with security, uh, we're going to talk about security now, like right now, on this show, this episode, right? So, um, security in the cloud. You, you, sorry, what? you should all be secure. Quick, everybody be secure. Everybody be secure. Okay, we're done. Bye. Security done. Um, this this isn't going to be like a, a a checklist or like do this and you'll be compliant. It's more. It's going to be a discussion between two old sysadmins. Um, and just what we think are important topics to consider 
uh, when you're moving things to the cloud, how things are the same, how things are different, right? So first, I, I figured we'd talk at least very briefly about what what security on-prem kind of looks like, right? You've got your own data center, your own network. Theoretically, that network is secure from unknown people, right? Like, that's the intention, right? You, you set up your network, unless you are something where, you know, like Jason and I both worked in higher ed, obviously we had a, a specific problem of there are unknown people that have to be on our network, right? And those, those had to be isolated from, you know, the, the data center networks. Uh, but they're, you know, I guess it's the same, it's basically the same concept uh, of hostiles, right? So hostiles trying to get into your network, you, you don't want them in, right? That's, I don't want to say it's an easy task, but it's a more straightforward task, I'll say, because you've got a defined perimeter, which is your physical network, right? Your physical data center. So it's easy, right? You put some locks on the door, you put key access cards, um, you have a firewall, you have someone hopefully that knows how to run that firewall, and you do your best to defend your network, just like if you had a castle, right? You had a castle, you have a moat around the castle, got a drawbridge to let the right people in and out, and the bad guys shouldn't be able to get in. In the cloud, that's different, right? In the cloud, you still have a lot of the same concepts, but you don't have the physical perimeter, right? And Jason, feel free to, to like chime in at any point here where you think I'm going like off the deep end. But I think thus far, I've, I've, <laughs> I've hit it, right? Ding! Da ding! Is that kind of time? Right. So um, in the cloud, you're in someone else's data center. You may not even know where that data center is. You may have a vague idea where it is. You might be able to look up where it is, but you, you don't have physical access to it. Unless, I mean, I, I guess there probably are some cloud programs where maybe you can do that. But generally, what we're talking about, your average cloud tenant, you don't have access. You don't even know where your VM is running. Uh, you can't just walk in and point to it because you don't know where the data center is. You don't know what hypervisor it's running on. Uh, it's just not possible, right? You don't know what network gear's on or what network gear it's running on. You don't have any access to that network gear. You don't have um, a defined physical perimeter like you do with your own on-prem network, right? So that kind of changes the game a little bit, right? Now, obviously your cloud provider is gonna give you some tools to like some very basic tools, which I'll touch on right now. And then we'll have some more advanced tools, which Jason hopefully has information on because he put them in here and I've never touched any of them. <laughs> he, wait, he's like, wait, I'm supposed to know wait, this what? stuff? I just put the names in there. No, um, I'm just faking it till I make it, man. Yeah, right. All these years, he's, he's just been pretending. Um, but so at the very basic level, right, you're in, within your cloud provider, you're going to have the ability to define your own networks, define your own firewall rules, right? But those are all software defined. They're, they're, they're logical, not physical, right? And that brings about its own, its own complexities, Right? Because you, you can't physically go and like see these things and touch them and you know whatever you need to do to uh, determine what's what. And I've, I've run into to issues with uh, specifically with customers I worked with at Red Hat where you know they have some weird issue and they don't have access to certain layers of that stack. So they can't see what's going on there. You have, you have to depend on the cloud provider. So you have to trust that cloud provider that they're giving you the right information and that their own network is secure. So... Um, so I guess I said, we're going to talk about how it's the same and how it's different. So how is it the same? I mean, there are some things that are obviously the same. You've got physical machines, you've got hardware, you've got 
you've got virtual machines, you've got host-based based firewalls, um, you've got security security groups, they call them, right? Which is basically, is that like, a, is that more like a network firewall or is that more like? Uh, it's, it's they're, they're ACLs, uh, effectively. I mean, security, security groups are, are, um, they're, so they're, they're, they're very akin to like normal ACL, I guess. No, NACLs, uh, network ACLs in, in like AWS, a network ACL is more like a, an ACL on a, on like a Cisco box where it's like, you have to, you have to set them up inbound and outbound and they're, they, they, they're not stateful. They don't, they don't really, they did let exactly what you've told them in or out. Right. Um, whereas security groups are stateful. So if you set up a security group that says, you know, inbound port 80, it knows, right. So port 80 is coming in and I keep the state of that. And I know what port needs to be opened outbound to get the, the return traffic out there. So the, the the security groups are more like a stateful firewall and uh network acls are more like the the acls that you would find on like a a, a router or a switch so i've i've never touched a uh, uh, network acl on any cloud provider i didn't even know that was a thing that existed security groups are the things that i've touched and i always they're similar to a host based firewall except they're not Right, they're not on the host. Are they more like a network firewall that is directly in front of a specific host, or can you or can you treat them more like a network firewall that's in front of, say, a network of hosts? I uh, you treat them more like a uh, the they're on the v, I believe they're on the VPCs. Um, I don't know how this translates into Azure because I know right. Azure has similar things, but I'm not exactly what the sure what they they term them or how they work there. Right. Um, but network ACLs are are basically attached to a VPC, so it's the the it's a sort of a the way I would look at it is if you have a, a like internal stuff the network ACLs are great for internal stuff I have an internal network that should only ever see traffic from other internal networks I can put a network ACL on that that just says here's all of my IP range these are the IPs that are in my network and then it'll just automatically block anything that's not in that IP range, which takes out a lot. It can take out a lot of traffic depending on how you ha- how you set things up. Um, and then your security groups are more like the. I would say they're more like uh, like an IP table set up on a, on a specific host, um, although you can share them between hosts. So you can apply them to multiple hosts, uh, multiple VMs or databases or like pretty much every network connected type of item in AWS can have a security group assigned to it. And you can use the same security group as long as it's in the same region uh, and uh, zone. I believe you can use the same security group across any one of those resources. So you can use it across all of them at the same time. It's the same. It's the same group definition, but is it the same like logical device? I guess is what I'm getting at. I guess. Does it really matter? On a for security group? Right. Uh, no, it, I mean, it's it. No, I, I wouldn't say that it's the same logical device. I mean, because you have uh, so say you have like an RDS instance, you can apply the security group to that. Yeah. Which is most likely running on on completely different hardware somewhere completely yeah. different yeah. from from where your VMs are. And then you have like your your EC2 instances, which you can apply the same security group to. I guess, um, and they're they're just VMs. I guess what I'm what I'm trying to to get at is, if I were to take the security group and call it a firewall, right, and I were to put it on a network diagram, 
and I were drawing a network and my hosts, right? Where would it fall? Would it be like, here's my host, here's its connection to the network and the security group is on that link? Or is it more like, here's my network, the security group is here and my hosts are behind it? I think it's more no, like it's it, right it in front of the host. The, the first one, yeah. So yeah. Be, it would be right in front of the hosts. Right. But, but you can, you, you know, like I said, the same security group can be replicated multiple times but it's, you know, it's without more having like, to recreate it. Yeah. It's more like a definition, though. It's more like these yeah. are the ports I want to open if I'm running a web server. These are the ports I want to open if I'm running a right. database server. These are the ports I want to open right. if I'm running application foo, right? Right, uh, whereas a, a network ACL is the latter one that you were talking about. That that would be between the, between right. networks, so okay. like between VPCs. Okay, and that's an important distinction, right? Because if you have two hosts that want to talk to each other, you have to realize they're going to go – out one definition and in another, right? So if, yep. so if you have outbound uh, outbound rules in a security group, can you do that? They're inbound. Yes, only, aren't actually, they? you do. No, you can no do they're, outbound? In, they're inbound and outbound. Yeah. Okay. And and one of the one of the cool things is that you don't have to. So a lot of a lot of uh, hosts are dynamic, like IP address wise. Right. So you're you're you don't necessarily know what address is going to come up, but the way security groups work. You can create a rule in the security group that says allow traffic on port 80 from anyone in the security group. So if when you apply it to a new host, automatically that rule is sort of created in the background. So it's very dynamic that way. Good, good. And that's a whole that's actually a whole other distinction, right? That's something that is similar but different from uh, an on-premise deployment where the IP address schemes could be wildly different than what you're used to. Now, I guess if you've got your own networks defined and whatnot, you can you can define what IP space your your machines come up in, right? You've got like virtual IPs that are assigned to these things. They're not they're not uh, always necessarily random, right? I guess they're never yeah, random. Yeah, you can but you can you can static like you can static within the within the IP range that you've like the subnet that you've assigned to a uh the subnet that your v, that your what VM I, is in, what I mean you can is statically the, assign the address. What I mean is the subnet. You define the IP space for that subnet, just like you would on prem. Yes. Right? So if, if you've yeah. got a network, you've got a subnet assigned to that network. Um, that is yep. assuming you've taken the time to define a network, right? If yes, because if you just like log into, you know, the AWS console and spin up a machine with the bare minimum setup, you're just going to get a non-routable IP from. Uh, Amazon, and then a public IP that can change. I'm not going to say at any minute, but at any reboot, right? Uh, any any shutdown and restart of the of the EC2 instance, right? If you just reboot the OS, it'll it'll keep that that auto assigned right uh, right public address. Okay, so right any any uh, I guess terminate's not the right word. Terminate is what deletes it. Any. No, ter- uh, yeah, terminate deletes it. So it's it's a it's a it's is a, it any a stop. It's a stop, right? Yeah, any stop, any stop and start again. Yeah, stop. I think is what it's using. Because stop and start could move it to a whole different piece of hardware, whereas a reboot should keep it on the hardware it's on. Uh, potentially put it on a different piece of hardware, but yes, I said could. Yeah, a reboot. Could. Not not uh, that it will. Right. It could. Right. So so looking at it this way, like um, uh, a a reboot is just like a physical machine if you reboot the machine like you well i guess it's not completely like that but if you reach if you reboot the machine you're not shutting down like the cpu on that machine yeah it's a um, it's a like vm it's, it's the 
it's right. a VM, the, the, right? And if, if you take a right. VM down to its, its bare minimums, right, it is a process running on a piece of hardware. If you right. reboot so the it, the ed- process is not stopping. So therefore, the machine right. shouldn't move. If you shut it down, right. the process has killed. When you turn it back on, it could come up on the same piece of hardware. Right. But in an environment like a cloud, I would say it's probably more likely that it will come up on a different piece of hardware. I would think yeah. it's more likely. And, yeah, and, and I'm sure there's ways to tell, like, whether it moved or not, but ultimately, like, who cares? Right. Well, exactly, exactly. That, that's kind of my point, though, right? That's one of the differences. Whereas, I mean, I guess if you're in a clustered environment on-prem, it's a similarity, right? Because you, the same thing could happen there. If you're in a cluster and you shut down your system and turn it back on, it could come back, come back on on a different machine. But you have a lot more control over that. Um, right. Which means that from a security perspective, everything needs to account for that. You can't, you can't count on it always being on the same physical piece of hardware, and even more so in the cloud, because you don't even know what that physical piece of hardware was. Right. Like you, right. you can't and, identify and it. It's entirely yeah, it's entirely possible you end up on a on a piece of hardware that has somebody else who's just like hammering the hell out of the machine. Mm-hmm. And you'll suffer for it. It right. happens. Yeah, yeah, it does. It absolutely does. Now I would assume they have logic that tries to determine this host is overutilized and that host is not, and that they put you on the one that is less utilized. Yeah. Yeah, but if you're hope. already on a host, yeah, if you're already, if you're already on a host, yeah. and somebody starts like slamming away on it, like you know, again, you're you're gonna suffer. Right. Enjoy. Now this comes down to though some of the other uh, topics we've talked about, where systems running in a cloud provider should not be treated the same as a system running uh, on prem. Right. On prem, it's the it's the old right. it's the old cattle versus pets argument. Right. On-prem, you might have a, a very carefully crafted machine which does a specific thing and is very predictable, and you probably treat it like gold because if it were to explode, it would mean re-handcrafting that machine, right? Whereas in the cloud, you can do that. You can absolutely do that. You can still spin up a VM and handcraft it the way you want it to be. Uh, the processors are, processes are slightly different, but uh, the... The idea is the same, but on a cloud provider, it not only does it benefit you to be able to quickly stop and start machines for the reason we were just just describing, uh, but it also benefits you to be able to rebuild them quickly in the case of an outage or in the case of, you know, just, uh, I guess I'm blanking on the other reason I'm trying to (laughs) describe here, but uh, the if you want to if you want to scale, you want to be able to yeah, quickly build them as well. I scalability mean, and it, to be honest, uh, most cloud providers don't even guarantee that your machine will be up 100 percent of the time. In fact, they tell you that it yep. may not be up 100 percent of the time, which is why you need to have res- yeah. resiliency built in and the ability to redeploy the ability to spin up that same workload somewhere else. Right. So when you're dealing when you're dealing with with a, a, a traditional VM style in in cloud, whether it's EC2 or or in Azure, um, the the machine itself, like once you have the machine running, your disks are going to stay available, um, barring any major complications at the provider. But your, your disks will stay available, so you can customize it and you can shut it down and spin it back up again, and you'll have the same thing. But if right. you're looking for scaling or or to, to create a, a bunch of them. You know, that's that's where you get to the point where you, you want to start creating images um, like golden images of of your complete setup 
that can then be sort of shuffled out. Otherwise, you'll spin up from, say, a bare bones, you know, Linux distro of some sort. And then you have to run like Ansible or Puppet or, you know, insert your favorite uh, uh, tool here and wait for it to do all of the things that it does to make it your machine. Right, right. All right, so we're spending a lot of time talking about uh, running a VM or a, like an instance like that in, in a cloud provider. These methodology methodologies and the way in which you would protect uh, these things may change if you're doing something like uh, using the, what's the word I'm looking for? The services provided by AWS. If you were a cloud native native application, I think is the buzzword I'm looking for, uh, where instead of running an EC2 instance that has the OS that you want on it and the services you want on it, you're leveraging all of the API-driven services that Amazon offers, like Lambda and like, you know, RDS and I don't know. There's a billion at this point. Um, I've never spun up an application like that. Have you, or have you? Uh, mostly run on like EC2 style VMs. The majority, the, the majority of what I've done is EC2, but I've, you know, I've, I've played with Lambda a little bit. Um, we've used API gateway, uh, uh, MS, uh, MSK, I think it's called the, the, uh, the Kafka service. Um, you know, I played with some of the different RDS databases. So I, I've played with a bunch of the different tools and, you know, they're, for the most part, they're they're pretty straightforward. Um, security wise, the majority of them all use security groups, so it's it's kind of pretty cut and dry. Um, it makes it really easy. Like I said, like you can use the same security group for a lambda coming in and say, you know, uh, you have it applied to the lambda, and then your backend servers can say, you know, anything that comes from this security group, which should be a lambda, you know, will allow that in. Um, you know, so they're, they're, everything's kind of very tied together, which which is nice until you try to leave. So if you're doing, I'll just use RDS as an example, right? You would you don't have control over the operating system that it's running on, like you would on EC2, right? On EC2, you it, might do some things yeah. to harden that machine uh, because that's what you do on a Linux box, where you have all that control. With something like RDS. Or any of the other services that are uh, offered, you don't you don't have that level of access. You have to sort of depend on the cloud oh. provider to do that. So right. you do your best then to limit it based on port and IP address, right? And user and password, I'd assume, or keys. Uh, yeah, user password, access keys, whatever the authentication mechanism is. Right. But on the on the on the plus side is like you're not hardening the OS, right? Nor do you have any idea what OS it is. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, like the only thing that's exposed to you is the port for the database. You don't have right. any other ports open to you for that whatever machine that's running on. In fact, it's entirely possible. I don't know how they do the engineering on the back end, um, but it's entirely possible that the IP address and port that they give you isn't even tied to that machine. They can be they, you can do some fancy routing some kind of and switching and everything else. Or to, yeah. or something like there's, that. Yeah. There's all sorts of craziness you can do because like especially when you're dealing with um you know like the the rds clusters like some of those setups can have multiple you know many machines in them so 
you have a you have like a single endpoint or a, fa- a failover endpoint and that's it. But you know you know there's more than two machines there, so something is happening to make sure that those that balances over to the other machines. Right. So I guess uh, the the point I was trying to get at there was well one like how are these things secured and that that pretty much covers it right you from your perspective it's secured by you set up a you set up who should have access to it through that security group and then of course you make sure that whatever you use to authenticate to it is kept secure whether that's an API key right. or username and a password or some other sort yep. of token or key or something like that. Um, yeah, so but, your your security your security for a database is only the database layer. You don't right. have to worry about securing right. the machine. So you worry about creating access, you know, multiple different access levels for, you know, this this application needs access to these tables and this application right. needs access to these tables, you know, and you know, make sure the password is strong, that sort of thing. Um, uh, I believe it's uh, everything uses TLS by default or whatever proprietary is available because I think they have Oracle now and I, God only knows what that uses. <laughs> whatever um, it is, I'm sure it's expensive. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> yes. Um, so wh- whatever whatever secure mechanisms are available to connect to the database uh, and then you have it all wrapped up in security groups to prevent, you know, basically your that's your firewall. All right. So uh, really the the differences here are they, they end at the database layer or I should say the similarities end at the database layer. The differences come everything beyond that. If you're running a Linux box with your own relational database on top of it, uh, you're responsible to protect everything from the kernel on up to the service on up to the access, right? Like soup to nuts is your responsibility. You need to harden the OS. You need to make sure that it's got you know, whatever your security controls are in place, whether they're host-based firewalls or network firewalls or whatever. Whereas if you're running a service, or I should say utilizing a cloud provider-provided service like RDS, you don't care. You don't have to care. Well, maybe you care, but you don't have to care. (laughs) And even if you do care, you don't have any control over uh, what's beyond that access point, what's beyond the, I've authenticated the database to the database and I can talk to, I can get my data out. Right. right. So and they, they manage they manage patching for you as well. So right. you don't even like you can choose the major version typically of the of the database that you want. Right. Um but right. beyond that, they, they automatically patch for you. Yeah. You'll so get, they'll you'll get some warning. They'll they'll, they'll let you know. The, but uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh depending on how you have it set up, for some setups, they do rolling patches where it won't actually take your service down mm-hmm. and other setups. Like if, you know, if you, if you set it up without any sort of, uh, uh, clustering, um, you know, you, it's going to go down and it yeah. upgrades it and then it comes so, back up. So the cool thing is that you don't have to be the one doing those updates. Right. Right. Um, if you're afraid of losing that level of control though, you know, that's a consideration, right? If, if you're one of those folks who yep. just needs to be able to, to do that yourself, or wants the control over what version you're running or whatever specific down to like what patch level you're at, right? Then this, this may not be for you. But again, this isn't, that's not necessarily a security discussion. I guess it is in some cases. Um, but it means that, you know, the, ne- the next name CVE against uh, whatever backend is behind RDS comes out. You, you, not only do you not know if it's been impacted unless Amazon tells you, uh, you don't have the power to patch it. <laughs> you have to wait for them to do it, right? Which is both good and bad, right? And right? It, I'm not saying that, that yeah. that's that, that's a negative. I'm saying that that's you you don't have to lose sleep over it. 
unless you're really a warrior. <laughs> yeah, the one the one thing that I will say about using services like that is that it forces. Well, I mean, you can choose not to, but it forces de development of applications to be more resilient. So it, it, yeah. it the developers should be writing their applications such that if the database is down for some reason, it automatically fails over to the backup or, you know, cause like depending on how you have the cluster set up, or if it goes down, the application says, okay, database is down. I'm going to mark the site as unavailable or pieces of the site is unavailable. And I'll continue monitoring the database until it comes back up. Right. There's like, yeah. there's a million different ways to do this, but that's an interesting concept. So the, the sites, the site isn't necessarily down, but the pieces that require that particular service could be. That's I've never really right. seen that approach. That's it just never really, right. so really occurred to me. So instead of, I mean, I'm not sure that anybody has done this, but instead of having the uh, the WordPress, you know, like uh, database problem page that just comes up and says like database is broke, right? And that's all you get on the page. Instead, you can have it. You know, the database goes down for some reason. You can have the page go. To like a, a you know, hey, the site the site is currently under maintenance. You know, or we're could, aware of it. It could know. go to a cached copy of the page. It could go to a cached copy, right? Yeah. Like I said, there's a million different ways to do it. Yeah. it. It can it can more gracefully fail as opposed to just popping up an error that nobody right. knows what to do with unless you're running the system. Right, that nobody cares about. All, all you know is your customers are seeing a database error, right? Which obviously yep. is. In some yep. cases, that's that's like that's like nightmare fuel. In some cases, it's eh, whatever. They'll move on. <laughs> yeah. So the other the other caveat with a lot of AWS services is that you can choose whether the service is public or private. So, for instance, with RDS, you can say that it's it's publicly accessible or it's privately accessible. Private means it's only accessible inside of your specific AWS instance um, on your IP ranges that you have set up. Uh, public means it's going to have a public IP. You can still put security groups around it, um, but it has a public IP. So if you screw up your security group, you might let somebody in. Um, people stop making databases public. This is just dumb. Uh, <laughs> but it's there. Or, it's possible to do it. Or just three you know, be careful. <laughs> uh, I should put the article in the in the news, but uh, apparently uh, S3 buckets are publicly disabled by default now. Finally, after 11 billion years, I know they they've been slowly but surely like reining in that that default posture. It used to just be the default was they're public and they're open, which was crazy. <laughs> and then it was like, yeah, they're public, but they're password protected now. So now now they're by default, they're they're not even public. Yep. Yep. I, I haven't confirmed this, but this is this is news that I saw flow yeah. across the other day. It's probably good. Although, I mean, I. I'd imagine there's somebody at Amazon or maybe a team of somebody's at Amazon that make judgment calls based on the most frequent use of these buckets, right? And if the most frequent use is data that should not be public and should be behind a password, then that should be the default. <laughs> yeah, I mean, given given the age of S3, I imagine that the original defaults were more of a you know, hey, we need to put values in for this. It sounds like this stuff should be public. Just make it public. Right. Um, and now nowadays they look at it and say like, oh, this was a bad stance. That we should a, change this. That was a bad idea. Let's not do that. <laughs> Whoops. 
Yeah. You know, like saying that characters should be eight uh, passwords should be eight characters long and, and you should rotate them every 30 days. Like, right. Sorry. That's a, that's a bad stance. Right. Well, no, there was a day when that was probably perfectly fine. You know, when passwords weren't as easy well, to crack because we didn't have the compute power. Yes and no. I mean, if you go back and the, the guy who wrote the original document basically came out and said, like, I needed something. Right. I just made it up. This it wasn't based on any. It seemed like anything a good number. other than <laughs> this. Sound, this sounds like a good number. And yeah, you should change your passwords so that people don't get them like that. That was kind of what it was. Now, nowadays, it's like long, complex passwords and and password rotation should be based on what the password is used for. Um, mm-hmm. And enforcement is only for certain certain things. Right. So. Right. I was it's it's funny that you mentioned that because just just the other day I was finally getting my wife to set up Bitwarden uh, so I could share passwords with her. I'd I'd switched. We were on LastPass family for a while and then LastPass did some things that I didn't like with their pricing. And I switched to Bitwarden, but she never followed along. And to be honest, she kept forgetting her LastPass master password anyway. So she wasn't all that keen on password managers. So when I was finally setting her up, She's like, well, what do I set the password to? I'm like, well, put in whatever you whatever you you want. And the one she put in, it wouldn't let her set it because it was too weak. And I was like, oh, is that that? Because she has one where she has like a couple letters that are based on like like family members and 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 a birthday or something like that. And I'm like, well, that's not terrible, but it's not good for this. I said, make it a sentence. Just make it a sentence that's easy to remember. It'll be long. It'll have spaces in it. It'll have punctuation in it. Just do that. And she's like, I can do that. <laughs> like, well, yeah, you could do that. In fact, it's better than that thing you're using. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's funny that you left LastPass because of pricing as opposed to, you know, them blowing themselves apart again. Oh, well, this was years ago. I, I left. Yeah. It was it was they had. Yeah. I don't even remember anymore. They had I forget what they did. I don't even remember. They became. They, they sold themselves to the same people that to, to go to the same people that own the go to stuff. And then they just started price gouging because that's all that company ever does. Yeah, I think that it had some it was the, it was definitely price that made me leave. It was it was like all of a sudden features that I wanted were going away unless I paid more or something like that. Um, so I went to Bitwarden, which has been free ever since. Yes, there's a pay version of Bitwarden, but the free version does everything I need it to. So I don't care. And yeah. if I wanted yeah, to, I, mean, I could host it myself. Yeah. Which is cool. Yeah, the last pass is owned by GoTo. Uh GoTo bought Jive. Um GoTo bought I think it was Go to my PC. Like all of those every time one of those got acquired, like the prices got jacked up. Like like I yeah. know people who left Jive, they were like this was this was great last year cuz the pricing was reasonable and now it's so expensive we're, like it's it's better for us to throw away everything that we bought from them and start anew with somebody else. Right. Right. So. So anyway, I guess uh Password managers are related to security yeah. in the cloud, huh? Use a password yeah. manager, yay capitalism. Folks, and you can put it in the cloud if you want to. <laughs> yeah, yay <laughs> capitalism. Thanks. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, I guess a lot of what we talked about applies to containers in the cloud as well. You want to pay attention, except in that case, you also want to pay attention to what your container images are based on. Uh, you want them from a trusted source, and maybe you want to vet them yourself or create your own. Right. Uh, there's lots of trustworthy well, vendors out there that make container the, images, though. The same, so. the same goes for on-prem. I mean, you, you kind of want to know what you're running. Yeah, right, right. So containers are one of those that you can do either um, do either way. 
but you're right, the same deal. Um, containers on-prem or containers in the cloud, you want to vet them and make sure that they're they're based on exactly what you need and they don't have any holes in them. And if they do get holes in them, that they're patched quickly, right? So make sure you get them from vendors you like. Uh, but there's many ways to run containers on cloud providers, some of which are more akin to that RDS example that we gave, and some of them are more akin to the EC2 example we gave. So know what you're getting into, right? If you're running Kubernetes or OpenShift or Rancher or whatever on a cloud provider uh, versus running EKS, right? Because I, I think EKS is the one where you don't really get visibility into the, the Kubernetes layer, right? Or am I thinking of so, so, Fargate So you have – no, so there's, there's ECS, 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 which is which – is, which is the container, the Elastic Container Service, which is right. just Docker, um, and, and in ECS you have no access to the the servers that right. run ECS. E- uh, you really have no no ability to get in there and do much. Um, I also EKS, felt like the pricing of that was like each container cost you the same as an EC2 instance would have. Well, you pay for the EC2 instances. Yeah, you pay right. for the EC2 instances to spin those up to right. run the containers, and then you pay for the containers. Like, yeah, it's it's kind of. It seemed but, it didn't but, seem cost effective. <laughs> but well, but the, you have to add into that it's managed, so they're yeah. handling all yeah. of your patching and everything else, the the networking, the patching, all, all the stuff that you would normally have to handle yourself when you spin that up. They're doing it for you. Right. Um, at the EKS layer. Uh, you still have access to the nodes, like the worker nodes. Um, you can SSH into them, do whatever you want. You have no access to the um, to the mat to, to the. I think they're still called masters to the 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 controller nodes. Yeah, the controller nodes. I don't know what terminology they're using anymore. Um, I think I think it's controller node. At least that's that's what they use in OpenShift, and OpenShift follows a lot yeah. of the same uh, nomenclatures that Kubernetes is. Yeah, so th- so th- those those are managed internal, like by by AWS. Um, again, they'll upgrade the the whole nine yards. Matter of fact, they'll upgrade the nodes as well, the the worker nodes. So when you do when you go through a, an EKS up, upgrade, it, they'll upgrade the the um, the controllers. So that's all that layer is done, and then you can you can just click a button, and it'll upgrade the all the worker nodes in a in like a you know round round robin fashion. It'll drop so one, the, upgrade it. Takes it takes the whole cluster down and upgrades them. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, any any containers that are running on the node it takes down to upgrade are obviously going to go down. But I mean, that's the nature of containers. You know, right. so it'll, it should move to another machine. Um, it does it pretty well. It's it's it's. Pretty controlled, um, and then if you have plugins or I don't remember what the the any of the services like ingress controllers and 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 any of the other controllers, um, that is also that can also be managed by the EKS interface. So you could just say like upgrade the ingress controller to the next version, and it, you know click a button and off it goes. Cool. Unless you have custom stuff in there, but yeah. yeah. So. Um... I guess what I was trying to get at was security for those clusters. If they're managed, I would assume is managed by Amazon or your cloud provider, right? Yeah, if it's managed, they they handle the OS layer. Right. Um, they handle upgrading any of the the uh, service versions. Um, in the in the case of ECS, they manage. They basically manage all of the networking layer and everything on there as well, um, and you just use security groups to get to your your containers. Right. 
All right, so um, I guess there's one other point, and then we'll get to the you, – you listed these different security tools here, right? Um, I'm kind of curious because I've never been through this sort of thing with a cloud provider. What does audit look like on a cloud provider versus on-prem? Like, do they just gloss over the stuff the cloud provider is responsible for? Or do, does the cloud provider also have to provide some sort of, uh, you know, evidence to say, yes, you're secure? As in, if you're being audited? Well, no, like, well, security compliance, I guess, is what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. There, Which, yeah, so, security uh, audits is what, yeah. I'm, what I'm talking about. Yeah, the, the cloud providers provide uh, documentation that they are certified for certain things and, and right. what they what it covers. Um, basically, you know, AWS is SOC 2 compliant. Uh, uh, I think they're ISO something or other compliant. And so, there's a whole list of them they have. So chances are your cloud provider goes through their own yearly process of being audited and certified. And then instead yep. of you having to worry about any of that, they hand you a slip of paper that says, we've already passed this. The only thing you need to worry yeah. about is your applications that yep. are on top of us. Yep. In order, in order to, in order to be able to provide you with that paper, they have to go through those right. audits themselves. So right. they, they go through that, they get certified and then their, their layer is certified. And then on top of it, you know, so it's not like, it's not like you can just say like, well, AWS SOC 2 certified. So therefore I'm SOC 2 certified. Like it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Um, you're, they're well, SOC you're, 2 certified. Yeah. Your, your application, your services, your EC2 instances, whatever, anything you have control over, I'd expect you'd still have to prove Yes, right. I'm doing the things you want me to do. Right. You have to prove your configuration of their services. So, you, right. you know, there's a whole there's whole lists of, of things that you can go through to, to identify. Um, the nice part is, in theory, um, you, this is scriptable. So you can you can write scripts that basically go through and show you like pull all the evidence for an audit. You just like run the script. Boom, whatever boom, boom. you need to and then poof you've got the you've got the audit uh, information then it's just a matter of interpreting it right right so that's cool so this could theoretically make your compliance checks your your, your yearly compliance stuff easier because yeah you don't have to prove that your firewall is up to date or <laughs> whatever because your cloud provider is doing it for you uh, right. all you have to prove is the applications on top of it and whatever you have access to configure so although Theoretically, that would mean you have a smaller team of people anyway, right? Like, imagine if you were doing it all yourself. You'd hand some of those tasks off to your systems administrators. You'd hand some of them off to your app developers, right? So it's, it's. I guess it's the difference is who's, who it was handed off to. In this case, the cloud provider would be handling stuff that, like, say, your systems and network team would have been handling. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you... you, you Typically, you still need a systems team of some sort mm -hmm. um, when you, even in the cloud provider, um, but you, you don't have to worry about handling hardware and um, networking team wise. You don't need people who are configuring switches and routers and right. and firewalls. But, <clears throat> right. you know, like it's it's sort of a different makeup of a team as opposed to, you know, and, and they can be smaller um, as opposed to having all of that that brain power to, you know, because you've got Cisco's and yeah. and. F5s like you and, you know, you 92 different things. You wouldn't need the guy that rack and stacks anymore because there's no more racking and stacking. You wouldn't need the guy that right. runs the network cables anymore. You wouldn't need, right. you know, the Cisco engineer anymore, right? So, right. yes, so, your, your so staff you, could be smaller in that respect, but it could be bigger on the app dev and, you know, cloud architect side. So, yeah. Right. 
Right. So you, you take those guys that did that stuff and you train them up to to do the different stuff and, yeah. and you kind of swap things around. Yeah, I'm, I'm not looking at it from a I've just moved to the cloud. Now I'm going to fire a bunch of people. I'm looking at just like if you were to side by side compare someone who does it on prem and someone who does it in the cloud, how those teams might look different, how you get from one yep. to the other as a whole. Like that's that's an HR decision that's above my pay grade. <laughs> All right. Um I think that so we literally had two bullet points. How are they the same? How are they different? <laughs> and we talked about that for an hour. <laughs> Almost yeah, an hour. So, the, so let's get on to the, the next the other, bullet point. <laughs> the other major bullet point is is security tools. And this is this is very much from a like there's there's a lot. There are a lot of security tools out there for cloud stuff. Um, I, I've basically listed a couple that I'm aware of uh, that that I've seen in action as opposed to trying to list everything in the known universe. Uh, Cause that would be crazy. Oh um, yeah. And to try to talk intelligently about everything in the known universe would be impossible. Unless it's your job. Trying to talk to intelligently that. is usually impossible, but it is. This um, is iron system after all. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the, of course, uh, because you know, we're an industry uh, and, and security likes its, its terms and buzzwords and everything else. Uh, there's, there's a, there's a term for these tools. They're called CSPM, uh, which is a cloud security posture management tool. Posture. Um, yeah. My posture is yeah, good. Yeah. I stand up straight. Yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, so most cloud providers, I mean, the, the major ones, uh, I, honestly, I don't know much about Google. I, I assume they have one too. But uh, you know, like AWS has something called AWS Guard Duty. And you basically turn it on and it, it will monitor... Uh, logs and look through your settings and just kind of give you information on, hey, uh, these things are configured insecurely. You know, you have uh, you have these S3 buckets that are open to the public. Um, you have these default uh, security groups that don't have any rules. Um, you know, that that sort of stuff. And, and it'll give you all that information. It's pretty configurable. Um, you know, you can monitor things for like malware protection. So it'll monitor... Uh, logs on servers looking for, um, you know, known malware signatures. Uh, you can do um, like Kubernetes protection. It'll monitor Kubernetes looking for known bad things. Um, it is passive. Uh, I don't know that there's an active version of it, um, it meaning that uh, it monitors and it alerts you. It won't make changes to your system automatically. Um, which I'm, uh, you know, until you're extremely comfortable with the tool, I wouldn't recommend doing that. Yeah. Um, but, but it's, it's, it's pretty good. And if, if you're only using AWS, it's sufficient. Um, it's, it's typically, you know, like that's, that's fine. Um, in Azure, I believe it's Microsoft Defender. Uh, at least that's what I got when I started looking it up. Um, uh, not the same Microsoft Defender that's on your laptop that does other things. I was just going to say, other Defender, is that the same as, other Defender. Is that the Microsoft same as Windows uses, Defender? No, <laughs> it's not. This is like Azure Cloud yeah. Defender. Yeah, I, it's it, my understanding is it's kind of an equivalent to what Guard Duty does, but in the okay. Azure world. So it's going to give you kind of the same thing. Like, hey, your blob store is open to the public. Like, that's probably bad. Um, and it's configurable. Right. And again, it's sufficient for if you're only an Azure customer. But if you have both Azure and AWS and Google and you know maybe a couple others, 
Then you get into like, you don't have a single pane of glass because everybody wants a single pane of glass. Everybody wants that that one ultimate interface that just views everything in one shot and you look at it and go, I see everything and my life is wonderful. Um, Red light, green light. Red light, green light, cup of coffee. Yep, exactly. (laughs) Yep, that's exactly where I was going. So um, for that. Just that phrase brings back so many memories. (laughs) For that. Yes, it does. So, so for that, what you need is is a, is a like a third party CSPM tool. Um, I can talk about two of them that I've seen recently. Uh, uh, I like one better than the other. Um, one of them is called Prisma. It's from Palo Alto Networks. Uh, the other one is Lacework, and it's from Lacework. Uh, they're both CSPM tools. They both support a wide variety of providers. Uh, and like every other security tool on the planet, they do more than just CSPM now because you have to stuff every possible single service into it that you can. So it does cloud posture management. It does container scanning. It does uh, active Kubernetes scanning. It, like it's just they just keep adding crap to it, um, which makes it more expensive. Single pane of glass, uh, harder man. To use. If, how do you I, get I know, a single pane I, of glass I hate, I hate if these. it doesn't do everything? I hate these tools. I hate them. Um, <laughs> I am not a fan of Prisma at all. I was not thrilled with their interface. I was not thrilled with how it worked. Um, they push very hard on their active protection. So they want you to plug it. They want you to turn it on and tell it to actively protect. So when it sees something bad, it fixes it for you. Um, if you trust them, great. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. Um, that's, I don't trust any of those tools at this point. That's so a lot of that's a lot it's of kind faith. of a scary thing. It's a lot of faith to put yeah. a third party tool. You did, you really have to be comfortable with that tool before you can let it yeah. automatically change stuff. Yeah. Uh, the other one is Lacework. Lacework also has uh, active protection. Um, they don't seem to push it as hard. Um, they both have the ability to run um, like agents on your servers. Like if you have like EC2 instances or whatever mm-hmm. it's called in Azure. Um, you can put an agent on it and run it and it'll pull logs and monitor file systems and everything else. I think they're just instances Um, in Azure. They just call them, they just call them instances if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, and then, uh, I believe both of them have now, uh, or are working on, they're either, some of these are still sort of in beta, but, um, they're working on, uh, like, uh, agentless scanning, um, which is basically like, you know, they're they're using either the tools built into the into the cloud provider or they're taking images and scanning them or like there's a million different ways that things things work. Um, maybe they're OK. Like, you know, they, they yeah. both do sort of the same thing. Uh, one touts that it's better than the other because it supports more services. Of course. they um, do. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's marketing. But if you think about it. If you think about it, what are the main services used on AWS? Uh, EC2, uh, EKS, uh, ECS, S3, RDS, maybe like the the you know some of the um, queuing services, uh, the email service, that sort of stuff. Like, there's probably a dozen of them that are major. They both support them. Yeah. So the one that doesn't support the the one that supports more is supporting things that like most people haven't even heard of, let alone use. 
so you know they it's it's all marketing it's it's like we support th- you know 72 services like yeah but 70 of them nobody's ever heard of 48 so of cares? them no one cares about <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're yeah. there for this um, niche market that cares about them otherwise no one they, cares they both do basically do what they say that they're supposed to do yeah. um i find prisma's interface more confusing you know but that's that's more of a personal preference thing that could just be uh, you. i have no idea what they cost i wouldn't want to pay for either of them um but i'm i'm sure that the numbers are are large uh, and of course, of course they, they both have different ways that you pay. I think one of them, one of them you pay in like credits. So the, the entire platform is open to you. You can use any one of their services on their platform and you pay with your, your pile of credits. Whereas yeah, the other you, one uh, you pay, you, you pay for a service or, and if you want the other service, you have to pay for it. So you, you know? have to, you have to go to the token machine before you, uh, <laughs> yeah, you start I don't even know day. how that works. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if you can buy more tokens or, you know, whatever. It's, it's, it's kind of goofy. Um, there's other, there's other CSPM providers out there. Um, but you know, for the most part, those, those, I think are like the two sort of bigger leading ones. Uh, the other ones are, it's more of the same. Um, I'm, I don't know that I like either of them. I, I'm, I don't know. I, I just I'm not I'm not a huge fan of it. I, I would rather I, honestly, I think if you got guard duty and you got defender configured and in a good place, I think between the two of them, you know, yes, you're getting data from two different locations. But I would rather have a third. If I was going to buy a third party tool, I want a third party tool that can ingest the reports from all the other crap that I'm using. And then be able to give me a normalized report as an output. I want it to bring in Tenable. I want it to bring in, um, you know, Guard Duty and Defender. And I want it to pull in, you know, like all, all of your different scanning tools and, yeah. and all the security stuff and then say, here's your hosts. Here's the data that we have, you know. Right. And, and if, if Tenable gives you, you something want, more than, yeah, it's you just want like normalize a, it. You want like an aggregator. Yeah, is what you're saying, right? I I kind I of agree, right? I think that's yeah. This is I think that's much more valuable. This is sort of related. I'm I'm this this isn't necessarily a cloud security tool, but it is, but it isn't, right? Um, ha, have you seen Insights Red Hat's Insights? Of course, I, I would bring so. this up because I've been poking yeah. at it because of what I do for a day job, right? Uh, but we have a vulnerability management plugin, or not plugin, but uh, section to Insights now, and coincidentally, we're gonna have. In, I think, two episodes from now, um, I, I, I talked to the TMM that works on Insights, and he's going to come on the show to talk about Insights and the vulnerability management tool, because I think it's pretty neat. I've been poking at it lately. But anyway, um, it does, like, for RHEL anyway, it'll do, like, vulnerability identification and even remediation. Um, but I, I had the same thought. Like, if this just exposed all this via an API so that I could then pull it into something else, like that'd be even better, right? Because this is great for my real estate, but what does it do for, you know, everything else? Well, nothing, because it doesn't talk to those things. It talks to real. Did, did, you, did you just say real estate? Real estate, yes, my real stuff. What? I know, I just, it's real estate. I just, it, okay. 
my stuff that's running rel my rel infrastructure I, I how's that my no, rel I, infrastructure I, I is that better <laughs> yeah, i just rel, rel estate real estate i just it, you know it's, it's <laughs> is, sounded, it sounded very marketing funny, I and I, I have to give you the side eye now that is kind of funny uh, but yeah, and that's that's exactly why I was hesitant to, hesitant to bring it up because because now you're like, oh, the red hat shield is here. <laughs> no, I'm just making fun of the fact that you're doing marketing stuff now, which I yeah. think is hilarious. No, I mean, I I had to, I'm basically I'm working on a I'm working on a workshop for the Rail Nine stuff, right? And part of it is we wanted to show off this this uh, infrastructure or this uh, insights vulnerability tool, and it's actually it's pretty good. I think it's pretty neat. It's pretty nice. You can get like reports out of it and stuff, but. And, but I don't want to talk about it too much because, like I said, we're going to have an episode about it later. Yeah. So if anybody yeah, cares I, I, about my, that, uh, I think it's the second episode in February. We're going to have John on to talk about it. Yeah. My my ultimate tool would be open source would be the best. But, uh, you know, I don't know if anybody's actually doing this, but I would I would love to see something that would ingest all of these different reports, normalize them and output them in a readable format. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, a lot of the a, a lot of the the. A lot of what I've seen where people are looking at CSPM tools is because they can go, they can look at the reports and then they can click the button on the report and fix the problem. Like, oh, I can just click on that and it'll fix the problem. Like, yeah. yeah, but what is it doing? Like, is it fixing it in a standard way? Is it like, what is it doing? You know, I, I'm not, I like understanding what's going on in the back end. I, I would rather have the report come to me, go through the report and say, okay, we need to fix these things. Let's go fix them and then go put in proper fixes that we have we understand and that we've we've sanctioned and yeah. build it into our automation you know like uh you know if because uh, i think the for instance like the ec2 instances have this uh metadata service um we may have talked about it in the past and there's there's two versions of it now because there's a there's a vulnerability in the first version <laughs> so you when you build a new ec2 instance you should be deploying the second version of the metadata service which is not the default <laughs> Why Damn would it be AWS? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like that's something that you would want to build into your automation. Like, sure, you can go and fix it on the three or four instances or 20 instances or whatever that you found it on. But you haven't fixed it at the core, which means that now they're going to spin up another 20 instances and the you're going to be back to square out, one again. It's going to be the same problem. Yeah. 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 And no button, no button in the CSPM tool is going to fix that for you. Sorry, that's not going to happen. So. So, yeah, I, I just I, I'm. I should probably just start a company and build this thing myself. You should. You should do. Now, th that would assume that the tools you're talking about all expose this information in a way that you could ingest. Yeah, they all they all generate reports. And um, but wouldn't it be better? I, I don't know about. Wouldn't it be better I, if they generated uh, like XML that you could import? Well, the Microsoft one probably does. It's probably in SOAP, too. Uh json but or the, whatever you know pick one yeah yeah no no they 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 generate some form of report matter of fact i think i'm not positive but i'm pretty sure that the aws one has a, a full api that you can just query for information so right, like right so that's my point tools, but like does tenable yeah. do that does every Ten security Tenable's, tool on the planet do that tenable actually has an xml output that you can use uh you know, open source tools. Nmap has an X XML output. Yep. Um, yep. You know, there's a there's a tool. The other tool that I have on this list is called Prowler. Um, I've I've only at the surface really looked at it. Um, that one looks like it also does an export of of data. Um, that one is kind of an open source CSPM tool that that works for both AWS and Azure, um, and will look at all of your all of your AWS and Azure 
Um, I don't know exactly which services are supported because I didn't dig that deep into it, but it'll compare it to like CIS benchmarks. It'll, t- it'll, you know, it's built right in. Hey, we need to meet CIS 1.5 benchmark. Does right. it meet it? And it will, it'll give you an output that says like, here's all of the controls. Here's what's met, what's not met, why it's not met, etc. You have that report. And again, pull that into the tool, you know, normalize it. Then like at that point, you have the benefit of we're being able to run multiple. T- I run guard duty and I run defender and I run prowler and I run, you know, these other two or three tools that I have. All that information comes in, normalizes all of it. And then I can see and compare things because what I found, especially with security tools, is you can go in and, and scan it with tool A and you'll get an output and you'll go, OK, I, I, I've gone and taken care of that. You scan it with the second tool and you're like, well, but I thought we took care of that stuff. Oh, it OK, it's different. It's this other thing. So not right. every tool shows you everything. Right. So, you know, having multiple tools running is is definitely a positive. Well, I would I would say go build the tool and make a million dollars. But you just gave away your whole idea on the air. I'm sorry. I did say we should just make an open source one, so it wouldn't be like it would be worth a million anyway. But I mean, I beg to differ working for one of the most successful open source companies on the planet. <laughs> right. So I build a tool and have Red Hat buy me. Okay, build a tool and then sell it to Red Hat. Anyway. All right. So this has been a fun ramble down the cloud security path. I didn't even shake my fist at the cloud. The whole thing. Are you proud of me? because <laughs> it's tempting when you talk about security in the cloud i guess maybe we should touch on that briefly right like data stewardship and ownership like do we have enough time to talk about that like these the cloud providers are certified to uh to basically say that your data is yours and it's not going to be we're not going to look at your data right yep yeah, yeah. so so from a legal standpoint, and this is the thing that always got me, right? From a legal standpoint, you're covered. However, from a did someone look at my data standpoint, uh, I don't know. I guess you could encrypt it at rest or you can encrypt it yourself so that they can't see it. Um, these are things to uh, think about, that, though, right? <clears throat> where's the where's the key stored, though? Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, how paranoid do you want to get? Is the I'm covered legally good enough? Those are things you're going to have to decide. Right. If I have data in a S3 bucket and I've got it secured so that no one should be able to read it, but someone at Amazon can read it because they've got the keys to the kingdom because they're the administration at Amazon. Right. But they're certified to say that they won't read it. <laughs> Is that good enough for you? Right. So I, I can I can state that AWS, Microsoft and Google all have financial, medical and right. government data in them. Right. They all do. Absolutely. Extensive amounts Absolutely. of that data. Yeah. Um, so I, you can be as paranoid as you want, but it's already happening. And everybody else those, is already doing it. <laughs> if those massive companies trust them, then so be it. I mean, that, right. that's right. But that that was always my shake fist at cloud argument. Right. And if you go back a decade, a decade and a half, that was what everybody was saying. And everybody has slowly but surely accepted that yes, your data is secure there. And if it's not secure there, we're all screwed anyway. <laughs> well, uh, are you 100% sure that your on-prem data is secure? 
that nobody in your networking server database, right. nobody, right. none of your technical because, people are looking at that data. Because, because I can I can tell you, right, and you know the same thing, and probably a lot of people listening to the show know the same thing. The admins can see your data. If it's on-prem, unless you have personally secured it and encrypted it with your password only you know, right, then they can see your data. You know, your email admin can go look at your email. Your file server admin can go look at your files, right? Yep. The question I, is I whether you say, trust them or not. Now, in the yeah, case I, of on-prem data, you could physically go to that person's office and choke them if you really wanted to. In the case of a cloud provider, who did it? Who knows? <laughs> right? right. I, I will say that it is. it seems to be easier to make the data secure in the cloud such that even your even your systems admins can't just unlock it and, and look at it. Yeah. Right. There's 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 enough of a there's enough of a ramp up to to have to you know pull keys and 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 like there's all sorts of different stuff that you have to do in order to be able to view the data. So it, it's it makes it that much harder to get to it. Right. Um, well, your admins. So, yeah. But what about the people administering? The cloud, the, the cloud services themselves. Well, they, they have to. They effectively have to jump through the same hoops. I mean, they have to go get the key, and then they have to, you know, assign. The, 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 there's, they still have to do all of the same things. Um, the difference is that I mean, I don't know. Again, I don't know how it works inside of AWS or inside of Microsoft. So I don't know what tools right. they have. That's what I mean. Um, that's that's kind of yeah, what I, I mean, mean, right? If, if your if your data is if your data is encrypted, they have to get the key. Period. Well, right? if so, it's if it's encrypted. At rest, then while it's live, it may be unencrypted, like while it's up and running, for example, depending on what it is and how it's accessed and whatnot. And yeah. we, we could talk yeah. about this for hours, I think. But um, yep. my point is that, you know, in an on-prem deployment, uh, there's always someone who's able to go see that data unless it is encrypted in such a way that there's no key stored on the system which runs it, right? So like if that key is a password you have in your head, there's no physical, there's no like data, there's no digital key that can just be plugged in to decrypt it automatically. Um, someone can probably go read that data. Now, does that mean that someone at your cloud provider can still read that data? I no, I have no idea. I don't know how it works on that, on that, on that side. But they're certified, right? So they're right. certified to say that either they won't or cannot read that data, right? So- right. Like, and that means that legally you're covered. Yes. And for, it seems yeah, like for is, most people, that's good enough. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, we've all got all of our data out in the open anyway at this point. So it doesn't really matter. I just published my, my blog anymore. You may as well. May as well. Yeah. Considering all of it's on the dark web somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Um, I was worried we weren't going to be able to get an hour out of this, and it seems like every time I think that we go over, and uh, I think I think we're just a little over an hour, so that's that's good. It's a good good point, I think, to take a break, and um, yeah, we'll get on with part two of the show, folks. If you are only listening to this part, I encourage you to go listen to part two. If you're watching us live, I encourage you to stick around and uh, you know see what part two is all about. Um, if um, if you want to find us. To watch us live or find us on social media, just look for the Iron Sysman podcast on YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, uh, Twitter. Is Twitter still around? I think it is. 
hasn't hasn't imploded yet. Um, and uh, yeah, if you're only listening to this part, thank you for listening. But you should check out the other part because it's a lot more fun. We're gonna chat about stuff, talk about the news. I'm rambling at this point. We're gonna go to the break. We'll see you guys in a few. Where's the thing? Push the button. Where's the thing? Here it is. I'm gonna push the button. All right, we'll be back. <laughs> 